The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. For a long time, I don't know how long, but a year or two, um, I have gotten up early in the morning with Calvin and Daphne, and we've been reading Courtney Anderson's biography of Adnarm Judson, uh, missionary to Burma. The biography is called To the Golden Shore. And it, the golden shore, the word golden refers to Burma because there's a golden kingdom. Everything there, it seemed to be made of gold in the, in the actual uh, emperor's palace, and it, and it just, the, the existence of gold and the use of gold is huge. If you went to the emperor and asked him for something, you were falling at the golden feet. There was all this kind of gold imagery. And so to the golden shore was an image that Courtney Anderson, the author, uh, chose for the, the mission, the entire mission to Burma. But at the very end of this biography, it had a different meaning. And these are almost the final words in the biography. It said this, at 15 minutes after 4 on Friday afternoon, April 12, 1850, Adnarm Judson reached his golden shore. Through more suffering than I can put into words, very few people died as hard as he did, suffered physically as long as he did. He actually said that. He said, I don't think many people in the family of God have died as hard as this. <laughs> and it just was a symbol of just... How difficult it was for Judson to live his life and to bring people to Christ. And then for us to imagine just spiritually what that meant for him. He was actually out at sea, died at sea. And for him to reach his golden shore, what an image that is in our minds. Randy Alcorn in his book, Heaven, opened with uh, a powerful story, an illustration from 1952 of a long-distance swimmer named Florence Chadwick. This is a woman who did stunning things that I can hardly imagine. Uh, sailed the English Channel four times, twice each direction. Set the record for, for that long-distance swim. But she wanted to swim the, uh, uh, from the Catalina Island off of the coast of Catalina to uh, California. And, and it was very, very difficult conditions that day. The weather was foggy and chilly, and she could hardly see the boats that were accompanying her. And she swam and swam and swam, swam for 15 hours, 15 hours. And she begged, finally, to be taken out of the water along the way. Her mother was in one of the boats alongside, said, you're very close, don't give up. And finally, physically, emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and was pulled out. It wasn't until she got onto the boat that she discovered that the shore was less than half a mile away, covered with fog. And at a news conference the next day, she said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Two months later, she succeeded, and it was just as foggy. And she said, I kept the mental image of the shoreline in my mind as I swam and enabled me to finish. So Randy Alcorn, picking up on this, says about his book, Heaven, said, perhaps you've come to this book burdened, discouraged, depressed, even traumatized by life. Perhaps your dreams, your marriage, your career, your ambitions have crumbled. Perhaps you've become cynical or have lost hope. 
A biblical understanding of the truth about heaven can change all that. He said, I pray this book will help you see the shore. So I'm praying that this sermon series, which I still don't know how long it's going to be, will help you see the shore. I yearn to give you a a fuller scriptural view of the eternally glorious world that awaits all of us in Christ. Now, by contrast, obviously most of you, if not all of you, know that this week Stephen Hawking died at the age of 76. He was a brilliant physicist, cosmologist, atheist. He suffered all his adult life with Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, and was confined to a wheelchair and became a picture of really a secular hope, you know, what the human spirit can overcome. He was a thoroughly secular man. And his work was seeking a unified theory of everything that would explain everything, origins, destinations, and everything in between. That's what he was seeking with physics and with mathematics. His most famous statement about religion goes like this. This is Stephen Hawking, quote, I have lived with the prospect of an early death for the last 49 years. I'm not afraid of death, but I'm, not, I'm in no hurry to die. I have so much I want to do first. I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy tale for people afraid of the dark. And in that spirit, I think, he died. It really is an amazing insight in the way he looked at human life, that we are nothing more than machines, biochemical machines, with certain biochemical reactions in our brains, and when all that stops, then life ends. Well, as brilliant as Stephen Hawking was, and he was, I have the joy and the privilege to stand here this morning and contradict him based on Scripture, based on the Word of God, based on faith in what the Lord has told us of the shore to which we are sailing. Now, last two weeks we have begun unfolding Revelation 21 and 22, which is the best, most careful description of the world to which we are going in the Bible. You heard Jim just read it, look at verses 1 through 3, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with people, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. What a magnificent vision of our future blessedness, of our future happiness. Not a fairy tale for those afraid of the dark, but a reality to which we are moving. And I think it's beneficial for us to take the scriptures as they're given and meditate on them, extensively meditate on them. Think about the ramifications of them. The Westminster theologian said, the word of God is not only what is printed on the page, but what can be logically deduced from the scripture. And in this way, we build a theology. I want us to have a theology of heaven. But I don't want to go too far afield from the text. Amen? I'm not not wanting to be like the astronaut that was with the jet pack, you know, and no tether. That freaks me out. Have you ever seen a picture? They did it, I think, only once or twice. And these guys are hundreds and hundreds of feet away from the space shuttle with a backpack on their back. I, I don't want to do that. I want to tether to the text. 
but I want to do everything I can with the text. I want to go as far as we can. I know that heaven is going to be far greater than anything we can imagine. Like it says in Ephesians 3 concerning God, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or think. That's a good translation, but the NIV, wanting to juice it up a little bit, says more than we can ask or imagine. And I think that's okay there because Paul is talking about things that push the limits of what we can think. And that's, I think, really what imagination is all about. So we're thinking about what can be scarcely imagined. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory and in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, both now and forever. Amen. So this morning, I want to zero in on one verse. And I know you're thinking, Pastor, at that rate, please don't think those thoughts today. Just think with me about verse 4. That's all I want to do today. I want you to zero in on verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. So we are commanded to meditate on heaven. Colossians 3 makes that plain. Also, Revelation 1, verse 3, uh, about this whole book of Revelation. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. Take it to heart because the time is near. So read these words and take them to heart. Ponder them. Cherish them. The great Puritan preacher and theologian Jonathan Edwards focused on heaven every day of his life. He said this, it becomes us, or it's beneficial to us, to spend this life only as a journey to heaven. A journey toward heaven. To which we should subordinate all other concerns of life. Why should we labor for our, or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and true happiness? Your whole life... Every moment of your life should be seen as a journey toward heaven. And you should take everything and subordinate it to that. As we said last week in 1 Corinthians 15, after an extended, detailed, theological teaching and meditation on the resurrection body, Paul applies that to our practical Christian lives, our lives of service to, to God and to Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, it says, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing move, move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And so that would include everything that God has equipped you to do in the body of Christ. Your spiritual gift ministry and all of the general duties that are part of the Christian life of intercessory prayer and evangelism and missions and holiness and all of those things. Stand firm and don't be moved by anything that happens to you and give yourself fully to your labor in the Lord. And meditation on heaven will do that. Now there are a lot of false aberrant views of heaven. Every false religion has a view of heaven. In Roman mythology, there's Elysium, which is a, a, a lush meadow, like a park, outdoor kind of park, shady parks, luscious fruits growing, and people would indulge in athletic contests. And uh, 
just Elysium, Roman Elysium. In Norse mythology, it's Valhalla, which is a feasting, banqueting hall with Odin, where you drink and eat meat and celebrate valiant military victories. Valhalla. Radical Islam doesn't seem much different. Teaches a heavenly paradise for warriors who die in jihad, including 70 to 100 beautiful virgins with wide dark eyes. And the blessed will recline on couches in a beautiful garden like Eden and enjoy sensual pleasures forever, including rivers of pure water, fresh milk, and wine. Rivers of wine. Islamic view. Buddhism speaks of seven circles of heaven that are just part of this present physical world and which are themselves temporary. But the ultimate goal is nirvana, which is nothingness, like a drop in an endless sea and you lose your identity and cease being to some degree. Native American tribes, like the Lakota in North and South Dakota, conceived of happy hunting grounds where you go and continue your life as a hunter, uh, but do very well up in heaven. All of this shows that the truth of, of Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, which says that God has set eternity in the hearts of people. People have eternity in their hearts. All of you do. You have a conception of the afterlife. You have a conception of the world that's coming. But the fact of the matter is the scripture reveals that we cannot rightly think about heaven on our own. If left to our own unaided imaginations, we will think wrong thoughts. As it says very famously in 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10, it says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. But, people stop at that verse, don't, keep going, but God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. So we should not just stop at 1 Corinthians 2.9 and say we don't know what heaven will be like because we don't know what God has prepared for those who love him. No, God has revealed, can I say it this way, some of it to us by the Spirit. And yes, we see through a glass darkly, but we ought to take what the Spirit reveals in Scripture and by Spirit, by the Spirit's leading through exegesis and good interpretation, try to understand this magnificent verse, verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The old order of things, the first things, like first and second. So we're in the first world now. There's a second world coming. So that's a more literal translation. The first things will have passed away. And this old order of things, this present world is filled now with incalculable suffering, incalculable pain. Really a river of death. Sin and death. Adam sinned at the garden. And, and we are taught in, in Romans 5 that in Adam we all sinned. And through Adam we received the death penalty. And we received a corrupt sin nature. And the suffering and misery that that has brought is just incalculable. But the text says that he will wipe every tear from our eyes. This is a powerful image to me of God's intimate relational comforting. With his own hand, he will wipe away your tears. Think of all the tragic funerals there have ever been. I think about especially grievous topic, infant mortality. The infant mortality rate, almost a million infants die every year. And how do you measure the grief that that's brought to women, to mothers and fathers 
for centuries, the tears that have flowed. How much more the death of toddlers, of when the child wraps you around their little finger and you love them and then you have to bury them? I think there may be few harder things and more tragic things in this life than burying a child. Beyond the tears connected with death, there are countless tears just connected with suffering. Think about tears cried by people in, in intense pain, like burn victims or cancer victims, people in their final stages, and, and nothing can relieve their agony. Or tears connected with loss, material loss, like a, just a house burning down. I remember we helped in Lexington, Mass, Massachusetts, in my first church after I came to Christ. We, there was a Christmas fire. It was connected to uh, electric lights and a tree, and it was very tragic. And a grandmother died of smoke inhalation, and, and they had lost everything. And we were there to just try to help. And just the tears, it was heartbreaking. Or you think about farmers that lose everything in their harvest, you know, when some hail comes or an early freeze and they lose all their, all their earthly wealth and they, and they have to start over again if they even can. I think about tears cried by single people who are looking for a spouse and they think that no one loves them, no one will ever love them and they just feel so lonely in this world. Tears of lonely people. Or even what we would, might consider trivial tears, but they're not trivial to the six-year-old who's learning to ride a bike. I thought my tears were pretty significant. I learned to ride a bike by riding down a hill. And uh, it was great until I crashed into a teenager's car and he was waxing it and buffing it. That was his baby. He chased me through the woods. This is a true story. That's how I learned to ride a bike. It's terrible. I cried tears of fear that day. But then there's just the, the tears of bitter remorse over sin. I mean, you think about people who have ruined their marriages through sin, men or women, and they can't get it back. And they just lament and weep, and there's just nothing that can be done for it. Or tears cried by old people in nursing homes as they have a photo album or something that brings back memories, and people in it are gone, and those, that time is gone, and they just are crying. They're just sad at the loss of an era. Perhaps the most poignant, I think, just in, in the sequence of redemptive history are tears that will be cried probably by all of us at Judgment Day. And this is hard for us to imagine, but when we give Christ an account of everything done in the body, whether good or bad, you have to give Him an account. You're not going to be condemned. You're, you're not going to hear the words, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So you're not condemned, but you're not free from accountability and you're just going to give him an account. You're going to look him in the face and explain your life. As it says that you will do in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. All of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That each one may receive the, what is due him for the things done in the body. Whether good or bad. I just think that when you see your wood, hay and straw portion of your life go up in flames. And you suffer loss. That you will feel emotions about that. That you will feel regret. And you will weep. I just imagine that that will be true. How sweet then would it be for Christ's own hand to wipe away your tears and say, no more of that now. You're done. Never going to weep over those things again. 
obviously closely connected with that is this next statement, no more death. There will be no more death. John Owen, the Puritan theologian, wrote a great work on the atoning work of Christ called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. What a great title that is. So when Jesus died and rose again, take those two together, he destroyed death. But the victory that God the Father willed that Jesus would win over death was going to be a long unfolding victory. It wasn't an instantaneous destruction of death that he willed, but rather... It is revealed that, it, that the Father said to the Son, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 25 and 26, Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And he will destroy death. He's going to win Death will be swallowed up in victory. For you basketball people, that's a 50-point win in the championship game. That never happens. But Christ is going to win a resounding victory over death. Just not yet. Not yet. That's why he wept at Lazarus' tomb, I think. Just out of compassion. Because of the sorrow that death has caused over centuries of redemptive history. Revelation 20, verse 14, talks about the final, the end of death. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. That is the death of death. And there'll be no more death. The key to this, of course, for us is the resurrection body. As we've talked about it again and again. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 and following says, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You can't go to heaven just as you are. You've got to leave behind this body of death. You've got to leave behind this body of sin. Praise be to God for that. Romans 7. You're going to be delivered from this body of death. Paul says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. But we will all be changed. In a flash, in a twinkling of the eye at the last trumpet. For the dead in Christ will rise and we will be changed. And earlier in that chapter he gave us that, that, the four couplets. Comparing the body of death and the resurrection body. The body that is sown, it's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a perishable bo bo body. It's raised in imperishable it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. So cling to those four adjectives. An imperishable body is coming your way. A glorious, you're going to shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. You're going to radiate with the glory of God. You're going to be raised powerful. I'm going to talk about this in coming weeks, but I love Isaiah 40 on this. You will run and not grow weary, you will walk and not be faint. Amen? How is that going to be? Limitless power coursing through your resurrection body. And it's going to be a spiritual body. And like I've said for a long time, I'm open for business. If any of you thinks you know what that means. We have some indication with the resurrection body of Jesus, which was doing different kinds of things. Wrapped up in those grave clothes and that sticky resinous substance. He comes right out of that and leaves all that behind. And comes right through the walls of the cave. Right through that heavy stone door. Right through it and then out he goes. He's gone. 
Long before the women came and, and the angel came down and moved the stone, long, he's gone right through the wall. And then later the disciples are there in the upper room with the doors locked for fear of the Jews and Jesus came and stood among them. Isn't that great? There he is. And he said as he needed to, peace be with you. And they're overwhelmed with feelings, with joy when they see the Lord. And yet he takes food and eats it. He says to Thomas, touch my hands and see. Thomas had said, unless I put my fingers in the nail marks. So he's physical and yet somehow spiritual. That's the best I can do. Now, for us, we understand that the pain that says no more pain. And I talked about this last time. No death, mourning, crying, or pain. You go to pain... Some of the worst pain there is in this life is mental, it's emotional. The anguish of depression and of sorrow and grief and regret, these things are incredibly painful. I, I think there are some parents that have gone through, the, through teenage suicide or whatever that they would take a physical pain rather than that, the emotional anguish they feel every time they remember their son or daughter. I've had it said to me. Think about every time they see a photo, every time they walk into the room or they see a stuffed animal that was in his or her crib. I mean, just what does that even feel like? There is a kind of a therapeutic forgetfulness that happens in this life so that we can move on. But what will we remember in heaven about our lives here on earth? That's a question that's occupied me for probably 10 years. There'll be no pain, no grief, no mourning, no regret in heaven. No psychological trauma, no anguish, no guilt, no regret, because all those things are painful. Will there be memory, though? That's a question on which some men that I really respect are divided. John MacArthur says to some degree that provisionally there won't be memory of these things. He cites Isaiah 65, 17 and 18. He said, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. That's the new Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth. And it says the former things will not come come to mind. It won't even be remembered. So I understand that that's what Isaiah is saying, but it doesn't mean you forget. I can show many verses that, that use that kind of language, and we're still remembering the Red Sea crossing, and something greater comes along. You actually treasure them both, right? I get to treasure both the Red Sea crossing and the greater exodus that Jesus won. Don't we get to do that? And so I think this is just saying the new heaven, new earth will be so great that any memories of the past life will be as nothing compared to it. But MacArthur is saying that he just can't imagine how we could remember the grief and misery and suffering of this life and not feel pain. So he thought of a kind of a provisional, I think, amnesia or some kind of cleansing of the memory there. It's not easy to understand. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got John Piper. He says there will be both memories and sweet heavenly regrets. So I was trying to figure that out. And I respect John Piper, but I couldn't come up with that. Sweet regrets. 
What he said, this is what he wrote, I want to live my short life on earth with as few regrets as possible. When I think on these things, it makes me tremble at the prospect of living a trivial, self-serving, comfortable, middle-class, ordinary, untroubled American life. I can't keep eternity out of my mind. Life is short and eternity is long, very long. It's a long time to regret a wasted life. Which raises the question, is there regret in heaven? Can regret be part of the ever-increasing unspeakable joy of the age to come purchased by Jesus Christ? My answer is yes. I'm aware of promises like Revelation 21.4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. End quote. But I don't think this rules out tears of joy. And it may not rule out regretful joy. Listen, he may be right. I just don't think I can go with either of these great men. Instead, what I'm suggesting is that there will be perfect memory in heaven and zero pain. No mourning, no crying. Mourning is the inner psychological mental state. Crying is what comes out of that, both of them gone. So how is that even possible? How will we remember? Well, I would say, how could it be any other way? How could we celebrate the grace of God in Christ to a multitude greater than anyone could count if we don't remember anything about their lives? If we're not able to celebrate God's grace to specific sinners and how he worked to bring that person through many troubled waters to repentance and conversion and then through sanctification to heaven. I want that story in heaven and next week I'm going to talk more about those details. Next week, I know it says in your bulletin that we're going to meet our wonderful brothers and sisters this week. We're not. Uh, that'll be next week. We're going to celebrate the beautiful diversity of the redeemed in heaven. We'll do that next week. But how can we not celebrate God's grace to us in detail in heaven? So let's go specifically to the one thing you worry about the most on this topic. Will I remember my sins? Will I remember my sins in heaven? And I think, obviously, most of us would hope the answer is, of course not. Heaven's a happy place. We're not going into all that again. But I'm saying, how can you celebrate the amazing grace of God without it? Think of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Begins the day breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Before that, he was carrying out those murderous threats by dragging off men and women. Picture that in your mind. And throwing them into prison. And when the Sanhedrin met, he cast his lot against them, condemning them to death, and then consented and delighted in their deaths, their executions, including Stephen. That was Saul of Tarsus. That's how he lived. But then one day, he's traveling on the road to Damascus, and Christ appears to him and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. He saw on the road to Damascus the glory, a part of the glory of the resurrected Christ and was transformed. Did he thereby forget what man he had been before that? Not at all. He writes about it in 1 Timothy 1. Listen to this, 13 and following. Even though I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. 
But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display, put on display, his unlimited patience. Now that display is good to convert people like us. But will it not do very well in heaven as well? He ends that whole thing with this beautiful doxology. 1 Timothy 1.17 Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I just don't see heavenly amnesia part of that. I think it's heavenly celebration of God's grace to Saul of Tarsus. So, will David remember what happened with Uriah the Hittite? I think so. Yes. Will Nebuchadnezzar remember that he was a megalomaniac pagan tyrant who used his authority to, to oppress the people he had conquered, even to the point of condemning all of his counselors to death if they couldn't tell him what his dream was, and then throwing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a fiery furnace because they wouldn't bow down to his golden idol? I think in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar was transformed. I think he was saved. Do you think he'll remember in heaven when Daniel said to him, renounce your wickedness? Do you think he'll remember in heaven what that wickedness was? I think yes. And give God the glory for his salvation. Mary Magdalene, I think, will remember that she was inhabited with seven demons. Remember the woman that, that wept over Jesus' feet and washed his feet in her tears and dried them with her hair? Remember that woman? And Jesus said... Because of the abundance of her forgiveness, we see the abundance of her love. There's a link between the two. The more of a sense of your forgiveness, the greater the outpouring of love. Isn't that going to work so beautifully in heaven? What about the Samaritan woman that Jesus met and saved at the well? I have no husband, she said. He said, you're right in saying you have no husband. In fact, you've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. What you said is quite true. Remember that? Do you think she's going to remember that whole story? I think she will. What about the centurion that oversaw the crucifixion of Jesus? I think he's in heaven. I've said to the guys this week, I said, the centurions always do well in the New Testament. They're good guys. You don't meet a bad centurion in the New Testament, I don't think. Maybe I'm wrong, but I mean, this centurion, especially, remember what he testified after Jesus died and there's that earthquake and the eerie darkness and he looks up and says, truly, this man was the son of God. I think that's the fruit of Jesus' prayer while he's still li living when he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That wasn't a universalistic prayer for a, for a high priest that just praying and hoping some people would be forgiven. That's the specific high priestly prayer for one of his sheep that was about to cross over from death to life. Father, forgive him. He doesn't know what he's doing. Do you think in heaven he's going to know that he was the one that killed Jesus? I think so. And celebrate God's grace to him as a pagan Roman and bringing him to salvation. Tertullian said that the blood of martyrs is the seed for the church. Will they remember their suffering? Will they remember the blood that was shed? Will they remember their persecutors if some of them were, became brothers and sisters in Christ? Blood of martyrs is seed and up out of their bloody seed comes new Christians. Many of them were their persecutors just a day or a month or a year before. Will they remember that they were persecutors? What about John Newton and all the people he enslaved as a slave trader? Will he remember his former profligate life, his wicked life in heaven? 
Corey Tenboom tells a story about how she met an SS guard who was in one of the death camps that she was in, where some of her family died. And he was so filled with joy because he'd come to faith in Christ and wanted to shake her hand. And she couldn't reach out her hand and shake his hand because of the, the difficulty of memory. Is it possible that they would have full memory in heaven and full, rich, deep fellowship in heaven too? What about Jim Elliot? Will he be able to spend eternity worshiping side by side with a Huarani who killed him and his friends and who were later led to Christ by his courageous wife, Elizabeth Elliot? I think they're already doing it, but it's going to be even better in the new heaven, new earth. The tapestry of grace that God has ordained through providence is woven through with all kinds of colors of thread. Some of them dark, some of them light. And that pattern doesn't make much sense to us when you see the backside and all the knots and all that. But when you see, when you see everything in heaven, when you see the beauty and the radiance of that place, you will rejoice. Take a minute and look, if you would, at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 through 9. This is probably the best verse that I have to prove what I've been saying. I'll just read Ephesians 2, 6-9. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Here's the key verse, verse 7. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. What does that mean to you? In the coming ages he might show how gracious he was to you. How could that be combined with heavenly amnesia? It doesn't make any sense. Forever we're going to have put on display just how gracious God was to us. And we're going to celebrate that with no mourning, no crying, no pain, just absolute joy and delight. Now, while we live in this world, we need to feel pain both physical and emotional or spiritual. We need to feel pain physically so that we stop doing whatever we're doing. Like if you're burning your hand, you don't want to wait until you smell the smoke. It is a grace from God to feel instantaneous pain to get you to move your hand away from that. So that you don't do significant damage to your hand. You've got the gift of pain. Now, in heaven, I don't know why we won't need any of that, except that there will be instantaneous healing if you ever put your hand on something hot. I don't know how to figure all that out. That's beyond me. We only have a few minutes left. The speculations are limitless. But in this world, you need spiritual, emotional, psychological pain connected with your own sin. You need it. You need to grieve and mourn and wail and change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom James chapter 4. It says it right there. You need to feel pain for your sin. Why? Because you're not done being in the world of flesh and the devil. You're still in danger. And the pain keeps you from future sin. It enables you to genuinely repent and turn away from damaging patterns of life so you stop doing them. In heaven, you don't need it. There won't be any world or flesh or devil. Not the world the way we define it as an alluring, enticing 
whore of Babylon. That's gone. And the devil will be in the lake of fire and your flesh will be gone. You'll have a resurrected nature. So you don't need any grief or mourning or pain over your sin in heaven. It's not needed. You need it now. And if you don't feel it now, you're in great danger. It may be that you're not even a Christian. So there is a place for grief and sorrow over our sin now. But not in heaven. And so how can there be memory of our sins without any mourning? I think of it like like the, the stinger being removed, right? The stinger is removed. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? So death got defanged by Jesus. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So the law gets defanged for us. In heaven, there won't be any law for us. Just the moral beauty that's behind the law. We don't need to be commanded to love God with all of our hearts. We will. We won't need to be commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves. We will. We don't need the law. The moral beauty will be there. But we don't need to be commanded. And so there's not going to be any stinger to the memories. I love Psalm 30 on this. Verse 5, it says, Morning may endure for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Psalm 30, verse 11 and 12, You turn my wailing into dancing. You, you remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy. Why? That my heart may sing to you and not be silent. To celebrate what you did in comforting me. So we will remember... We remember all of our sorrow and sadness, the circumstances of how we came to Christ. I was reading recently about how John Wesley was in a terrible, horrible hurricane in a wooden ship, and it's just heaving, and the the waves are coming over, and and the sails are getting shredded, and he is certain it's his last day on earth. And there's these German Moravian Christians just singing and praising God and ready. And he knew, watching them, he's not converted. He knew it. And then later, he went to a Moravian prayer meeting at Aldersgate and found Christ. He pursued the Moravians because they had something he didn't have. Now, in years later, when he looked back at that storm, did he look on it as horrible and awful or as the instrument of God to bring him to conversion? So that's how it can happen. All of the sorrow and the suffering. Do you think Joni Erickson Tata will remember that fateful day in 1967 when she dove off the bridge into the shallow Chesapeake Bay and snapped her spinal column? Do you think she'll remember that in heaven? Absolutely. But no pain. She'll be in a resurrection body and she will celebrate God's grace. How can you understand her life apart from that? It doesn't make any sense. All of her ministry flowed in, in large part from that. Just the idea of heavenly amnesia doesn't make, make any sense. As a trustee of the International Mission Board, I get to interview missionaries, and we get to meet these folks and and find out how they came to Christ, and with the married couples, we get to find out how they met. And so about two months ago, we met a couple who met at a party in college, a Christian ministry party, and she said, the, the woman said, I met him, I didn't like him at all. I mean, not at all. Then I left the party and backed into his car. crushed it (laughs) and then we met and we got to know each other and they were both laughing at that story I can tell you it wasn't funny that night it was not funny that night but later on they're laughing just take that and multiply it by infinity that's what heavenly memories will be like 
No sorrow at all, just joy at what God did, how he used it all. How we used our weakness and our sorrow and our sin and our smallness and our pettiness and all that and overwhelmed it with grace and built this incredible church. We're going to celebrate all of it. I'm going to talk more about it next week. I just could go on and on. Next week, meeting our glorious family. Not today. Applications. First and foremost, I just yearn that everyone listening to my voice here today would be there in that world where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Because you know, hell is the exact opposite of that. In hell, they swim in death forever. It's an eternal death. It's a death that never ends. The worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's an eternal death. And it's a, a pain you ca we can't even put into words what that would be like. And the mourning and regret will be more than we can imagine. I actually sometimes get foretastes as I'm sharing the gospel with people. It's like, I wish you could see how much you'll relive this moment if you do end up in hell. You will go back to the moments you heard the gospel and you turn your back on it. When Adoniram Judson went to ask the king of Burma for religious tolerance in his nation, and he gained somehow an audience with the golden ear, and he fell at the golden feet. That's how they talked about having time with the emperor. And they made their pitch, including he shared the gospel with this emperor. And he listened for a while and then stopped, dropped the track on the ground and walked, stepped on it and walked out of the room. Judson never saw the emperor again. And I thought to myself as I was, watching, as I was reading that to my kids, I said, do you, do you understand how that, that moment was exactly the opposite of what it appeared? What it appeared is that this American missionary was there kind of groveling on the ground begging for a favor from the mighty emperor. What was actually happening is an emissary of the true emperor of the universe was there offering this sinner a chance at amnesty from all of his sins that he would spend eternity in the true golden shore. That's what was really happening that moment. Satan is so deceptive and, and we don't see what's really going on. And so I am begging all of you who know yourself to be on the outside looking in. Now, today is the day of forgiveness, the day of salvation. Now, an emissary of the king is here begging you, be reconciled to God. If you've already been reconciled, you know that you are a Christian. How shall you now live? Pursue the two journeys, friends. That's how you do it. Grow in holiness. Put sin to death because someday you're going to be pure and holy. Put sin to death. Secondly, spread the gospel. Talk this week. We've got a number of weeks coming up to Easter. Invite people to church. Invite people to faith. Invite them into a conversation about this eternal world to which we're going. How many people surround us every day with Stephen Hawking's atheistic mentality? Tell them the truth while there's still time. Close with me in prayer. Father, thank you for the time that we've had today to celebrate your grace and your goodness. Thank you for, I just want to thank you for my friend, for Rob Hatcher. I thank you for the way I have been able to watch his family love on him and care for him. And for the grace you've shown him. And just the privilege I feel of being part of that in a small way. But I think he just represents a multitude greater than anyone could count. And we're going to be celebrating your incredible working. So diverse, so detailed in bringing people to Christ. I can't wait. So, Lord, give us joy, give us energy, give us um, the ability to stand firm and let nothing move us and be abounding in the work 
and the labor of the Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.